0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Fulwell, a gospel-centered community for Fulwell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfolwell.co.uk.
1: We're going to turn now to God's Word. So do pick up a Bible uh, nearby and uh, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 it's page 893 page 893 Daniel chapter 7 and uh, Simon and Vicky are going to come and read that chapter for us so Daniel Daniel chapter 7 and we're going to read a, uh, the whole chapter In the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the, other, the former beasts, and it had 10 horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human, being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed.
2: I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation— the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue these he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times of the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, (laughs) times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High." His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself.
0: Simon and Vicki, thank you so much. Morning, everybody. Well, we've entered strange and symbolic territory in the book of Daniel um, and that's going to carry on for the rest of the book. I don't know if your face turned pale as we had that reading. Um, Let's pray. And uh, as the handout goes around, um, uh, let's ask the Lord for help as we look through this passage. Let's bow our heads. God, our loving Father, we thank you so much for the Bible, for your word. We thank you for every part of it, the parts that are more straightforward to us, the parts that are more obscure to us. And, Lord, we trust that you have words of life and grace for us in every part of Scripture. And so, Lord, as we enter into less familiar territory now, after the great stories of the beginning of Daniel, pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, that your spirit would be uh, teaching us from the pages of his book, your book, as we look at it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, On Tuesday, on Halloween, if you'd wandered around the local streets, you'd have seen a lot of monsters. And uh, some of them were pretty grotesque ones. Fullwell Road, where we live, always tries to outdo everybody on that. And uh, uh, some of them were were, were grim. The gruesome pumpkin faces, the ghosts and the skeletons, the the horror scenes. But if you came in here, as we've heard and, and chatted about, you'd have come into our light party And uh, we'd have been talking here about Jesus, the the king of kings, the light of the world, who has defeated the powers of darkness. And it struck me during the week just how similar that is to Daniel 7. The Bible, too, has its monsters. Uh, Daniel has this vision of terrifying beasts which will sort of talk about and analyze in a bit, but they're horrifying creatures kind of coming one after another to terrorize the world. And But by the end, they're gone, and Jesus has replaced them. Jesus, the kingdom of God, has come and taken over. We even get an amazing glimpse of Jesus himself. Did you pick that up as we got to verses 13 and 14? Um, verse 13 Says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I don't know how you personally feel about the monsters of Halloween. Some hate it. Some slightly enjoy it. The way to respond is not to celebrate evil, nor to hide from it and fear it, but to turn to Jesus, the light of the world who has defeated the darkness. Now, look, as I said, this is the point in Daniel where it takes a strange turn. Um, Up until now, it's been relatively straightforward history. Um, Now we enter a series of bizarre visions which take up the rest of the book. And verse 1 gives us a hint that there's been a gear shift because um, Daniel says at the beginning, uh, well, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of uh, Babylon, Daniel had a dream. Well, do you remember, we saw the end of Belshazzar's reign back in chapter 5. So we've done all of that, sort of history now we're going back to the dreams that Daniel had during some of that time so there's a bit of a gear shift going from those kind of historical narratives to these dreams and visions a little bit like if you've ever seen uh, I don't know how many have seen the Quentin Tarantino film from dusk till dawn Uh, a bit of a gruesome film don't know if I'd recommend it but the first half of it is a sort of road movie and it feels very sort of Normal, based in this world, and then suddenly, halfway through, it becomes weird and supernatural, and there's vampires all over the place. Well, we've got to the bit in Daniel where we hit the vampires. That's where we are. And and Daniel, from now on, uses a sort of special kind of writing called apocalyptic literature. And I'll say a little bit more about that next week. There's a bit more time to talk about it next week. Um, But it's a kind of writing that's full of symbols. And you get apocalyptic writing here in Daniel, you get it in the book of Zechariah, and uh, most obviously in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible. And the word apocalyptic means revelation. So these symbols and strange visions are actually meant to reveal things to us. They're not meant to confuse us or leave us afraid of the mysteries. They're meant to reveal things to us. Um, So let's do it. Some churches preach up to halfway through Daniel and then give up. We're not going to do that. Um, uh, We believe, as uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We need these chapters of the Bible, we trust, just as much as all of the later ones. One final thing to say by way of introduction is, remember the symmetrical structure of this bit of Daniel, chapters 2 to 7, down at the bottom of your handout, you can see that chapters 2 and 7 are paired up. Um, they're the beginning and the end of this section of the book that's written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. And both of those chapters have four human kingdoms that are then uh, torn down and replaced by God's kingdom, which overthrows them and takes over. Um, so we can see that, that pattern. Um, and as we go through it, we can compare the, the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, in chapter 2 with these four beasts of chapter 7. They're kind of parallels between them all, each one representing a successive empire. So it helps that we've seen them before. We can match up some of the details. So here we go. Let's enter the vision of Daniel. And on your handout, two points from the dream, the rise of the beasts and then the reign of the Most High. First of all, the rise of the beasts, in verses 1 to 8, and then the explanation later on. So let's join Daniel. In verse 2, he's standing on the shore of a vast ocean, he says, with the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So imagine it. It's a kind of eerie, desolate, dark scene, the ocean crashing against the shore and the wind blowing. If we enter the mindset of somebody from Daniel's day, this great sea takes on an even more sinister kind of tone, because biblically the sea often symbolically represents a place of chaos and evil, uh, where, where chaos and evil come from, a hiding place for evil and the enemies of God. And sure enough, out of this evil symbolic sea, the place of chaos, emerge these four terrifying beasts, one after the other. Horrific creatures, sort of ugly mutant hybrids of animals and humans arriving one after another, sort of prowling onto the land. And the angel in verse 17 tells us the four beasts are four kings or four empires that will arise uh, from the earth. So let's go through them. Beast one snarls its way out of the sea in verse four. It's a lion, but it has the wings of an eagle. I mean, what chance would you have against a flying lion? quite glad those don't exist um, but almost immediately its wings are torn off and it says um, in verse four it stands on its two feet like a man the heart of a man is given to it this like the head of Nebuchadnezzar's statue is nebuchadnezzar um remember how nebuchadnezzar we saw him humbled in chapter four he was made mad like an animal and then became human as he humbled himself um, before the lord so that's beast one babylon In verse 5, beast 2 lumbers out. And it's like a bear, and it's raised up on one side, as if it's kind of poised and ready to attack. And in its mouth are three ribs, I guess, from previous victims, and it receives a command to kill and eat again. Now, who's that? Um, I personally think it makes most sense to say this is the empire of the Medes, the Median Empire, uh, because in various places in the book of Jeremiah we're told that the Medes were preparing to conquer Babylon. uh, And it already conquered three small kingdoms, uh, Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. I I think those are probably the ribs that it's carrying. You can read all about that in Jeremiah 51. Daniel 2 already told us that this empire is an inferior one. It was only briefly top dog, this Median empire, before... uh, Uh, merging with the the Persian Empire, which comes next. So beast 3, in verse 6, is probably Persia. It looks like a leopard. It has four wings, four heads. It was given authority to rule. The four wings and four heads, I think, indicate global reach. We say uh, the four winds or the four corners of the earth. Um, And that makes sense because Persia, out of all these human empires, was actually the largest geographically and uh, the longest-lasting. Chapter 2 describes it ruling over the whole earth. So far, uh, Babylon, Media, Persia. And at this point, let me just mention, if you want to read more about that stuff, if you sort of just think, I I just want to hear more about these connections between the visions and history, I've put a little sheet together, because... We could do a lot of detailed work here that just might not work for everybody and would take a very long time. Um, I'm going to leave these up front. It'll help you if if you want to just dig deeper into why I think what I've just said is is true and what the alternatives are. Feel free to have a look at that. Um, I'm giving you Simon Pedley's best efforts at how um, the visions match up with history. There are different opinions out there. There might be different opinions on the staff. I haven't particularly consulted. So um, take that as... Uh, you know, my current thinking, open to uh, correction and and growth. So there we go. Uh, Have a read of that if you like. Um, There's one beast left, and I've left it till last because it's the worst. The fourth beast in verse 5 is the most hideous. There's no earthly animals that can describe it. All Daniel sees are sort of teeth and horns um, and says the teeth are made of iron. And he says it's terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And with its iron teeth, it crushes and devours its victims. With its feet, it crushes anything that remains. This beast sort of feels more machine than animal almost. Like one of those killing machines from War of the Worlds or uh, some other uh, unspeakably dreadful uh, thing from imagination. Daniel keeps saying it, it was different from all the others. But whenever he explains what he means by that, he just says it was the most terrifying. And verse 19 says that. Verse 23 says it will devour and trample and crush the whole earth. Now, having gone through Babylon and Media and Persia, I think it makes most sense uh, that this is the Greek Empire that began with Alexander the Great in 334 to uh, 323 BC. He took just a decade to smash up uh, the ancient Persian Empire and take lands from there and all over the other uh, uh, surrounding places as well, from Europe to Egypt to India. It was an incredible takeover. And then after Alexander's death, uh, the empire became divided. It was divided up between four of his generals. um, A bit like the way, do you remember the statue in chapter two? Uh, the, the, The legs and the feet were iron. And then became iron mixed with clay, Uh, so an empire of iron and great strength, but then sort of splinters and mixed with clay. But weirdly, most of the attention given to the fourth beast in this vision is on uh, one little horn. The beast has 10 horns, but there's one little horn in verse 8. And the 10 horns, we're told later, are, are leaders or kings that come from this empire, Um, The little horn seems to be one particular king that emerged from this empire. And he has, it says there in verse 8, eyes like a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. I don't know how you imagine this. I've got the sort of sorting hat from Harry Potter in my head. A sort of horn with a face that talks to you. Um, And it says, he uprooted three of the other horns And there's an explanation later on in verse 24 that says, those three uprooted horns were kings. So it seems he uprooted three other kings to become a king himself. Who on earth is this? Who is this little horn? Well, in 175 BC, a king arose that scholars are uh, largely in agreement, fits this incredibly well. Uh, His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, And he arose from one of those broken up segments of of the Greek empire. And the descriptions of of the horn incredibly fit him. Um, Apparently he came to to power after doing away with three rival claimants to the throne. Um, The three horns that that he tore out. And there were seven previous kings of that bit of the the Greek kingdom. So add seven and three, you get the ten horns of seven. That seems to work. Um, but, But why such particular focus on this one king, Um, this little horn. Well, in 167 BC, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, attacked Jerusalem. He massacred tens of thousands of Israelites. Um, Verse 21 uh, spells it out. He says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, More detail comes uh, a few verses later in verse 25. He'll speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. All of that seems to fit. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, we know, spoke against the Most High. The name he chose for himself, Deo Epiphanes, means manifestation of God. One of the big egos of history. And I guess that pits him very directly against the God of all the earth. He then tried to change the set times and the laws, as verse 25 says. He, um, having invaded uh, Jerusalem, he outlawed the Jewish laws and the Jewish festivals. Um, he ordered the worship of Zeus in the temple. Uh, he put pagan images there. He desecrated the temple with pagan sacrifices. That was the original abomination that causes desolation. I don't know if you come across that phrase, but it comes up a number of times later in Daniel. And um, as it says, he oppressed the holy people. They were handed over to, to him for a time, times and half a time. Um, it seems from history likely that um, his presence and the presence of, of these um, abominations in the temple in Jerusalem lasted about three and a half years. Um, And that would fit with time, times, and half a time. If you look at the footnote, that can be read as a year, two years, and half a year. So three and a half years in total. The details seem to to fit remarkably well. You can see why this fourth beast is represented so horrifically and fearfully. God is describing in great detail a dreadful time that is to come. Uh, Now, for the Israelites then, these details would have been incredibly important, especially as they'd already gone through the exile that Daniel was in. Uh, They were looking forward to rescue from that. And Daniel's pointing further ahead and saying, yeah, there's, there's more terrible things to come. But here's the thing. They were being shown, and we are being shown, once again, that God is in control. God was governing world history even as Daniel and his fellow exiles were were there in Babylon even as this future for them a terrible situation would happen under Antiochus Epiphanes as these horrible empires ravaged their way through history God knew it all God revealed it all and God was giving answers to how it would all come to an end now is it the same in our day that's an important question to ask Well, in the book of Revelation, in in chapter 13, there's a beast which is a combination of these beasts from Daniel 7. It's a sort of lion, bear, leopard with seven heads. That's all the heads if you add up all the beasts from Daniel 7. And ten horns. And in Revelation, it seems to represent Rome, but, but in combination, a sort of combination of human empires in general. Which means as we look back at Daniel 7, which all happened a long, long time ago, we can, we can share Daniel's horror because beasts like those and like Rome in its persecution of Christians still stalk our day to day. They still stalk our world. And they take various forms. They take various shapes as the decades and the centuries pass. One regime will, will take one particular form, Others, a different one. At times, human empires might seem more human. A Mandela, perhaps a Gandhi or a Churchill. Sometimes they'll be beastly in their lust for power and violence. You might think of a Putin or a Kim Jong-un. Sometimes they'll be horribly, unspeakably evil. Uh, those that go down in history, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pol Pot a byword for absolute horror, so hard to describe. And for us, as we look at our times and and through all of history, these sort of rises and falls of human kingdoms affect everyone they touch. Daniel is particularly thinking about God's people, the the Israelites in the Old Testament, and for us um, uh, uh, Christians here, And Christians under beastly rules today, as we know, will um, sometimes live in relative comfort, sometimes be viciously persecuted. But this is the world in which we live, isn't it? This world of beasts parading out of evil and causing horror. We still get that in today's world. And whether you look sequentially through time or spatially across geography, you see this grotesque parade of beasts in different ways. And many, many persecuted Christians around the world would just say, "Yeah, this chapter is my experience. So make no mistake, we share this world where the beasts and the others like them are on the rampage. Um, horrors that stalk this world, um, maybe closer than we think at times. And I think Daniel 7 is saying, Wake up and feel this. Let these kind of symbolic and gruesome depictions of it just get inside you a bit and get under your skin and and, and help you to realize uh, what is going on when regimes oppress around the world. Maybe when you watch the news, your heart cries out when you see oppression of people by brutal regimes. That's good that your heart cries out. A world where such things happen is not right. We need intervention. We need some kind of end. We need a resolution. We need some kind of judgment on this parade of beasts. And that is exactly what happens as Daniel 7 carries on. So, the second huge thing from this chapter... Um, that we're going to finish with, the reign of the Most High. And this is verses 9 to 14 in Daniel's dream and then interpretations of it later through the angel. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but all the way through this chapter, um, one of God's titles that is used over and over again is the Most High. Higher than all the thrones of these beasts. Higher than all of these empires. There is another throne. And it is occupied by somebody far more powerful than all of them. Even in verses 1 to 8, there are hints of how comparatively weak these beasts are. Do you notice how everything they have is given to them? The lion's heart is given. The bear's command to eat is given. The leopard's authority is given. All of these things are given to those empires. So despite appearances, they're not in control. The most high is reigning above all, even as these beasts are roaming the earth. And initially, God's reign is behind the scenes, and we don't see it. But then in verse 9, there's an amazing unveiling. This great throne room is revealed, and we actually see the Most High God himself. Um, I want to talk through three uh, aspects of this that Daniel sees They're on your sheet. I've, I've put them down. The Ancient of Days passes judgment. The Son of Man receives worship. And his people receive the kingdom. So let's think about those three things. First, the ancient ancient of days passes judgment. Verse 9: thrones are set in place. And then look at this image of the most high God in verses 9 and 10. It says, He's the ancient of days. A great title. Unlike the beasts, God is timeless, He's eternal. He's without age or decay. He'll never be overthrown. He can never be overthrown. It says his clothing was white as wool. The hair on his head was as uh, white as wool. Sorry, clothing white as snow. Um, Unlike the beasts, I guess this is suggesting that God is perfect, pure and unstained in his moral justice, flawless in his wisdom. I'm seeing some smiles from those with a bit more white hair than others here this morning. This is nice for you, isn't it? Um, Verse 10 Uh, No, it's verse 9, sorry. God's throne was flaming with fire, this river of fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And from the throne, this river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. As, As Ed mentioned, this incredible picture of God as, on one hand, awesome. On the other hand, you've got to be careful with fire. Here is a judge with unstoppable power sitting on the throne to pass sentence, able to destroy his enemies. And in verse 10, God is surrounded on this throne by thousands and thousands, and it says 10,000 times 10,000 courtroom attendants, probably angels, his heavenly entourage. And as the court is seated, and as the books are opened, uh, we think here at last is a judge with power to sort out right and wrong. Uh, And the pure wisdom to always do what is right. And so, as it continues, the Ancient of Days passes judgment on these beasts. And in particular, on the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, in verse 11. Verse 11 says, I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. It's kind of almost a comedy scene. Here's this grand throne room of the judge of all the earth, the Ancient of days being unveiled. And somewhere over here, this little horn still rabbiting on uh, with his boastful words. And Daniel says, verse 11, I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Or as verse 26 uh, interprets it later, the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Nothing can evade the judgment of the Ancient of Days, not even this terrifying fourth beast and the worst king of the fourth beast. If we felt horror at the beasts and still do today, We'll feel joy at this judgment of evil human regimes. It's wonderful. It's wonderful news for the oppressed of every generation. It's wonderful news for God's people so often persecuted. Don't we long for it today? So the Ancient of Days pass in judgment. Secondly, the Son of Man receives worship. Here is where Daniel has that extraordinary vision of Jesus himself... In verse 13, there is one like a son of man. Now that phrase, son of man, kind of just means a human being. In in chapter 8, Daniel himself is called a son of man. But look at this son of man. In verse 13. It says he rides on the clouds of heaven. If you read Psalm 68 or Isaiah 19, you'll see that it's God who rides on the clouds of heaven. Then in verse 14... Um, This happens. The Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. These are things that only God should have. Total dominion over time and space, and worship from people of every tribe and nation. But the Son of Man... This human being receives those things that God alone can have. I wonder if Daniel was rather confused by this man who was also God. For us, maybe we know, if we've read the New Testament, that Son of Man was actually Jesus' favourite way to speak of himself. Uh, Apparently he used it 81 times. Uh, through the Gospels. Let me just read a sample of Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. At the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. That's Jesus. Each of those lines is from Jesus, speaking of himself, the Son of Man. This is a vision of Jesus. And just think about the amazing things Daniel 7 has shown us about Jesus. That Jesus is both human and divine. He's the Son of Man, and yet he's God. He's human in a way these beasts totally failed to be. No hint of beastly oppression and imperfection about him. Also, he's fully, truly divine, sharing the the sovereignty and worship of God with his Father, the Ancient of Days, um, reigning over God's world, receiving the worship due to him. And we learn why Jesus came. He came to, to sit on the throne of God, to rule over the world, having gathered a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Jesus talks about his kingdom a lot in the Gospels. It's this kingdom, the one that is promised in Daniel that replaces all of those regimes. Jesus is going to rescue his people from the beasts. Uh, But also, Jesus will rescue us from our own beastliness in whatever way that shows itself. Our own sin. We need forgiving for that. The Son of Man came to die in our place to save us from that. So, This is Jesus. Is this your Jesus? I don't know what your vision of Jesus is when you think of him. Uh, A sort of first century Galilean wandering through the Middle East. Well, also, when you think of Jesus, think of the one on the throne. The one who will one day reign unopposed after every other regime has fallen away. The one who deserves every ounce of our worship and our devotion. Don't side with the beast's side with the Son of Man. He came to save us. He came to rule over us. The most liberating, gracious, wonderful kingdom you could possibly imagine. Why would you want to end up in anyone else's kingdom other than the one of Jesus? All the others will be different varieties of beast, a bit worse, a bit better. But Jesus is wonderful. If you haven't seen how good Jesus is and how much we all need him, Keep looking, and you will see. Last thing, and this is a wonderful surprise, I think. God's people receive the kingdom. So in all the angels' explanations to Daniel in verse 15 onwards, Daniel seems to have been a little bit morbidly fascinated by the beast. He just keeps asking the angel questions about the beasts, and we can sympathize with that. Uh, he wants to know about the fourth beast and the ten horns and the little horn. Um, but although the angel gives some answers about that, doesn't say much that's new the angel actually repeatedly focuses on the people of God and the future that awaits them so look at verse 18 the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever yes forever and ever and look at verse 22 The Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to... who Who do you think is going to be named there? the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms of, uh, under heaven will be handed over to, You think it's going to be God or the Son of Man. What it says is, handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. So repeatedly in these verses, it's God's people who receive the kingdom, who inherit it. I don't think I expected that. It would be nice enough to be God's servants in his kingdom of goodness and light. That'd be great, but it seems there's more. We receive the kingdom, we possess it. The sovereignty, power, and greatness of former kingdoms is handed over to us. Now, this is still God's kingdom. It's still Jesus on the throne, the son of man, but we are with him. He's drawn us in to ruling. In case you think this is kind of misreading an obscure passage in Daniel, here's the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 3. Uh, It says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. That's the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And then verse 5, And they will reign forever and ever. Speaking of God's people. Do you see how uh, very different this is from the tyrannies of this world, even than the democracies of this world? This glorious future with Jesus involves reigning with him. It's an incredible future. Now, we've got to finish. So much in this chapter. Um, uh, let's land it. Um, do grab the historical handout if that's of interest to you. But look, do you have this Daniel 7 overview of history? Um, as you think about the kingdoms of the earth. They will come and go, and some will be better, and some will be worse, some will be only a bit beastly, some of them will be terribly so. But then, God's kingdom will come. And in Jesus, we've seen it already arrive and begin to break in. The kingdom of the Most High, the Ancient of Days, that is what we want to live for. That's where we want to be. That is what's going to make everything okay one day being part of god's kingdom so don't fear the passing regimes of this world don't give yourself to them and live for them live for jesus he alone is worthy of our worship and his dominion as verse 14 says is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, there's much for us to imagine in this chapter. There's much for us to interpret and chew on. But thank you so much for the way it points us to Jesus. Thank you so much that beyond all of the human governments in this world that have ever been and ever will be, There is a higher throne where you are seated, where your son Jesus has been enthroned through his death on the cross for us, where he will reign until everything is under his feet. And Lord, we take huge comfort in that. We thank you so much that that is the wonderful destiny you have called us for. And Lord, I pray for each of us here this morning that we would put our hope in the Lord Jesus and in his coming kingdom. And Lord, if we're still here as those who are thinking about these things, investigating, not quite sure what we make of Jesus, Lord, help us to see the wonder of what he offers. The end of all oppression. This wonderful kingdom of grace and peace and love. Pray, Lord, that you would put our hearts there. That we'd have treasures in heaven, in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.